This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. This morning, though, uh, we're going to be talking about Isaiah 29. So if you would stand for the reading of God's word, uh, and then we'll jump into Isaiah 29. Ah, Ariel, Ariel. The city where David encamped, add year to year. Let the feast run their round. Yet I will distress Ariel. And there shall be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel. And I will encamp against you all around, and I will besiege you with towers, and I will raise siege works against you, and you will be brought low. From the earth you shall speak, and from the dust your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost, and from the dust your speech shall whisper. But the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. And in an instant, suddenly you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and with a great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of devouring fire. And the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel all that fight against her and her stronghold and distress her shall be like a dream, like a vision in the night. As when a hungry man dreams, he is eating and awakes with his hunger not satisfied. Or as when a thirsty man dreams, he is drinking and awakes faint and his thirst not quenched. So shall the multitude to, of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. Astonish yourself and be astonished. Blind yourself and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your head, the seers. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give it to the book, one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonder and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord, your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, who say, who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me? Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field? And the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book. And out of the gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exalt in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffers cease, and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off, who by a word make a man out to be an offender and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate. And with an empty plea, turn aside him who is in the right, Therefore, thus says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. Jacob shall no more be ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale. For when he sees his children, the works of his hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understand and those who murmur will accept instruction. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. 
Let me just start uh, with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you um, that you are a holy and mighty God. Lord, I thank you that you care for your people. Lord, I thank you that you are determined to make your church, to make um, Israel the past, um, to make us ultimately into the image of your beloved son, the Holy One of Israel, Jesus Christ, Lord. I pray that as we apply ourselves to your word, that your spirit would stir our hearts to draw our affections towards you. Lord, I pray that as we move closer and closer to you, that we would see the beauty and the glory and the majesty of what you are capable of and trust you even more. So I thank you for this morning and help this word uh, encourage us um, and exalt you. In your name I pray, amen. This morning, um, we're going to talk about Ariel, and um, if you spent any time on the internet this week, <laughs> it has nothing to do with Disney, <laughs> and um, I'm probably, actually was talking to uh, a friend of mine that is helping me with Hebrew, and um, I'm not even saying that right, it's probably R-E-L, um, but it's an interesting word. <laughs> because scholars don't know what it means. And there's like a lot of debate about what it means. And so your Bible doesn't really give you, uh, you know, some Bibles will, may say something like Lion of God or some Bibles um, might say something like hero or, or something to do with, with something of God uh, because there, there's, uh, there, there's the, 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 the idea of El is usually in Hebrew is relating to God. It's like the word for God. So, so the Hebrew scholars are trying to make sense of, of what this word means. And the English Standard Version Bible basically doesn't make a statement, so it just turns the Hebrew letters into English. So we just say Ariel, or however we pronounce it. But, the, but there is a, sort of an agreement on what's being said here. We know from verse 1, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped, at year to year, let the feast run their rounds. We know that he's talking about Jerusalem. We know that he's talking about the, the quintessential city of God. And if we look at the, the book of Isaiah, God has, we had a whole first section of Isaiah. We spent 12 weeks where God is talking specifically to Jerusalem as sort of the quintessential way to describe his people. So he's, so he's talking to his people. And although uh, we are not Israel today, there's, there's differences in what's happened in sort of, uh, as, as God has revealed himself through scripture, we are still God's people. And, and the book of Hebrews talks about the reality that Jesus has come to the heavenly Jerusalem. And so because we're united to Jesus, you and I can still be sort of talked about as sort of the, the, the heavenly reality, the greater Jerusalem, the, the, the in Christ, true people of God. So, so Christ is the son of God. And because we're united to him, you and I are the true people of God. So, so God in, in Isaiah is talking to his people and he says, add year to year, let the feast run their rounds. He's saying, just keep on doing what you keep on doing. 
Ariel, Ariel, just keep up doing what you've always been doing. And he goes on to say, yet I will distress Ariel and there shall be moaning and lamentation. So it's like, you just keep doing whatever it is you're doing, but I'm gonna bring a measure of, of stress. I'm gonna bring a, a, a measure of lamentation or discouragement uh, or, or difficulty to my people. And he says, why? He says, she, she shall be to me like an Ariel. And we're like, okay, well, we don't know what that word means. So where are we going with this? And the general sense is, no matter what Ariel means, the general sense is, I'm gonna bring a measure of persecution so you will be like you should be. I'm gonna fasten you, I'm gonna shape you, I'm gonna mold you so that you will become like I intended you to be. This kind of this idea that God brings, let's not skip ahead. I'm skipping ahead. So God is talking to his people through the prophet Isaiah. And he's saying things are not right. And you're gonna just keep on doing the things you keep on doing. But because I want you to be the way I've designed you to be, I'm gonna bring a measure of suffering so that you will be as you, sh- as you ought, as you should be. So you will be like to me in Ariel. So I think about that. Paul says that these things were written down for our instruction so that we would understand what God is doing in the world. So think about that and I say, what just doesn't feel right to me? Maybe it's something in your personal life, a relationship. What just doesn't feel right? And it makes you uncomfortable. I think this is a a pertinent passage for us. He's talking directly to the people of God. He's saying, hey, things aren't how they ought to be. What does something just not feel right about the church that you go to? We can make that a broader statement and say, do, do we, uh, are we generally proud of Christianity in the United States? Do we, do we feel like the church is how it ought to be? And I think those are all relevant questions. Uh, I think as uh, members of this community, as people who are involved in this particular manifestation of the church of God, it should weigh more heavily on us that things are, if things are not right, if things don't feel right here, because this is where God has called us to interact today. But God is looking at his church. He's looking at the people of God in Israel. And this is again for us to learn from today. And he's saying, things are just not right. Things don't feel right. So I'm gonna step in 
I'm gonna bring a measure of distress so that you will be the way I've intended you to be. Amen. And so this morning, we're gonna kind of ask the question, how do we make it right? How do we make it right? If this is what God is speaking to Israel, then how can you and I, with our discomfort, lean in and say, how can, I, how can we make this right? Whatever it is that's making us uncomfortable, that's just, just, just a little bit off. And we're gonna hit essentially on two points. We're gonna say we recognize the way. Oh, see, we didn't change my outline. I did that this morning. <laughs> How do we make it right is the outline. We recognize the way results counts too. And we respond with humility. If something doesn't feel right, recognize the way God uses to make something right and respond with humility. Those are the, the two points we're gonna focus on this morning. I think this is what we see in the passage. Look at what he says in verse three and four. So he's promising that his people will be how he intended them to be. And he says in verse three and four, I'm gonna encamp against you all around. I'm gonna besiege you with towers. I'm gonna raise siege works. I'm gonna bring you low. And from the dust, your speech will be bowed down. Your voice will come from the ground like a voice of a ghost. And from the dust, your speech shall be like a whisper. He's speaking to his people and saying, I'm gonna humble you. And this is in the, the broader context of Isaiah. If you turn back to chapter one, he says the same thing. He's speaking to Jerusalem in chapter one, verse 24. He says, the Lord of hosts declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, I will get relief from my enemies. I will avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. God is saying, I will purify my church. I will make my people the way I designed them to be. So I will bring a measure of suffering so that they're purified and so that they, so all the alloy is melted away in their pure gold. This is what God is saying to the people in the Old Testament. And it's, it's interesting. We have a passage in the book of Hebrews that kind of connects this to Christ. Because I, I want us to, this is important as we think about making things right. As, as the Holy Spirit makes us uncomfortable with maybe how things are. And we ask, how do things get made right? We have to recognize the way that God purifies his people in this church. And so if Jesus in Hebrews chapter five, verse eight, it's a fascinating verse. It says, although he was a son, start in verse seven, talking about Jesus, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Now verse eight, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus did. He didn't do anything wrong. 
He, he was never in sin. Every opportunity that God brought into his life for him to suffer, he responded perfectly with the glory and majesty of God in the front of his mind. But he still, as he grew as a man and experienced different situations, that's how he learned to obey. The perfect son of God learned to obey through what he suffered. Learned to draw near to God more and more and more, all the way up to death, death on the cross. And he says some interesting things to his disciples in John 15. John 13, starting in verse 16. He says, true, this is, this is towards the end of his life. So he's about to leave his disciples. He's about to be put up on the cross and he's got a condensed version of the things he wants to communicate to his disciples before he goes. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now, in this particular context, he's talking about the washing of feet. He's saying, look at me, what, look at what I did. I humbled myself and I served those around me and I washed the feet of everyone in the room. And if me, your master, your Lord and savior, your king, your sinless king is willing to do these things, I'm calling you to do the same thing. And I thought it was really interesting that only... A short time later, in chapter 15 of John, he, re, he brings up a different example and kind of says this again. In verse 19 of chapter 15, he says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And he says, an interesting statement in verse 20, he says, Remember what I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. He's like, that concept that I shared with you earlier applies here too. There is a way for God's people to be purified. There's a way for God's people to go from things just not being right to glorifying and honor God. Amen. And that way is learning obedience through suffering. First Peter I think summarizes this really well, and we'll, then we'll go back to Isaiah. First Peter, I think, summarizes this really well in chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 12. He says, Beloved, pe the people who I'm writing to, I would care about, who I love, I, I want you to know this. I want to share this with you. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed to you. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You're united to him. You're, you're actually sharing in the same way of being purified that your perfect heavenly father, your perfect son was who was never uh, uh, once failed to be obedient properly. You're, you're in your union with him. God is working in your life the exact same way he worked in the savior's life. And he says, verse 15, look, 
we know that God has communicated to us the way things ought to be. So he says, don't let anyone of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. We're not talking about suffering for, for situations where we just completely blow off the law of God. Saying, are, are, you, are you leaning into what God has called you to? Are you trying to reflect the glory and the majesty of who God is as he transforms you more and more into the image of Christ? And, and while that's happening, things just don't feel right. You're participating. You're participating in the same thing that Christ participated in. You're learning obedience through what you've suffered. This is the way that God purifies his people. Verse 16, and says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God in, in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and it begins with us. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? I think it's really we're going to go back to Isaiah now because I, th I think that helps us understand what's happening in Isaiah. In, in the very next section in Isaiah chapter 29, he talks about this reality that everyone who is coming against God's people is going to just disappear like a dream you had. Like you were just eating your favorite pizza because you're like starving to death and you wake up and you can't even remember what it tastes like because it just goes away all of a sudden. I think the worst dreams are when I'm like in the middle of the night, I feel like I'm dreaming about drinking water. And then I get up and I'm like, <sighs> like I don't even remember that feeling because I, I woke up and now all I have a sense of is the reality that I'm still thirsty. He's saying, he's sort of uh, bucketing or, or bookending this section by saying, I wanna refine you. I wanna make you how you ought to be. Uh, I'm starting with my people because those are the ones I care about. Those are the ones I'm refining. Those are the ones I'm making in the image and glory of Christ. So it's going to start there. But don't worry. For all of those who are working against you, they'll be gone. Verse 9 says, astonish yourself and be astonished. He kind of aims his concern for his people. Again, God is determined to refine his people through suffering when things are just not right. And he's calling back on some things that happened in the previous chapter. And he says, blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. And in the previous chapter, all of God's people were like, it's fine. Let's just drink it up. Let's do whatever. They're kind of like God's word. Yeah, that's kind of boring. We're just going to do our thing. And that's kind of what's happening in the previous chapter. They're, they're ignoring what God is doing. So it's like, you want to ignore what I'm doing? You want to go on just keeping your feast and doing your things and, and not seeing what I'm doing to sanctify my people? He's like, then I, I will make you drunk. I will make, her, make you stagger, but I'll do that in a way that makes you blind to the things that I'm saying. If you're gonna ignore how I operate, 
if you, if you just feel that things aren't right and you're going to ignore how I'm working in your life, then as judgment, as judgment, I'm going to make you blind to the things that I'm doing. And verse 11 kind of gives us a picture of that and says, as for the vision of all this, has become to you like the words of a book that's sealed. When men give it to one who can read, say, hey, read this. And he says, I can't, it's sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. There is an interesting passage in the book of Revelation where John sees a vision of a book that's sealed. And the angel says, hey, there's no one that is able, there's no one worthy to open the book and understand the contents of this book. And John, in the very next line, just bawls. He just breaks down and cries. And it's a little dramatic and you're like, oh, what's this book so important for? And, and, he, and he's pulling from the Old Testament. And he's saying, God is revealing himself God is revealing himself in the way he operates to his creatures and to the world. God is showing us how he works and he's showing us the, the way that we can recognize the way that things are made right. And he's like, it's right here in the book. And he's like, no, nobody's worthy to open it. No one, no one is able to understand what God is saying. And he breaks down. And he's like, oh, what's going to happen? And, and we know the way the story turns. It says there is one who is, who is worthy. There is one who is able to open the book. There is one able to learn obedience through what he suffered. And that's Jesus Christ. He's capable. He's the only one that saw what God was doing, responded appropriately and glorified and honored him every step of the way. The beauty of what Jesus Christ has done is that now God's people in God's kingdom are united to him. So when he works in the world, when, he, when he's working difficult things in our lives or in our church or in our country, because we're united to Christ, our eyes can be open. And we can see what he's doing. We can see the way he's refining us. We can see the way he's shaping us and forming us and making us into the image of Christ. Amen. So when we feel like something is not right, when we are uncomfortable with maybe the way things are going in our life, the way things are going in our church, the way things are going in our country. You can just make that circle as big as you possibly want. We should understand and recognize the way that God makes things the way they, they should be. The way that God refines and purifies and makes his people like his son. And that's through suffering through difficulty, 
Those are, those are not the problem. Those are the instruments that God is using to fix his people. And you might think, well, what's wrong? If that's the way, if we recognize the way that he, he makes things right, it's through suffering, what's wrong? What's the issue? You think about that in your own life, like what? You know, maybe I'm very critical in my own head, so I can think of like a bunch of things that I don't do right, then I just ignore them. <laughs> but there's things in my life where I, I fall short and I understand like, man, that's not how it should have been. I shouldn't have responded that way. That's not kind of me to say. Why, why did I lack, lack all self-control there? We can think about, think about our own little church community. What's wrong? Some of you have probably a handful of things floating in your head. And a lot of those things are good things. I know they are probably thinking of them too. But I think this is really important. Because at the end of the day, the only thing that's going to make things right, the only thing that's going to make us go from, this just doesn't feel right, to I'm in a good place. The only thing that's going to make things right is if you and I, if our hearts are drawn closer to the Lord. Amen. Period. Period. This is what God says. Verse 13. Why am I going through all this? Because this people draw near with their mouth and they honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. People draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips. Those are good things. I like it when people speak well of who God is. Now, if it's a football player after winning the Super Bowl, you know, you're all kind of like, you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> whatever. So, <laughs> but, but how many of us worship this morning Claiming songs of the glory and the majesty and the beauty and the comfort of God or our hearts were somewhere else. We're thinking about something we gotta fix. We're concerned with a future thing. We just don't care, we're tired. God's saying that's the problem. That's what I'm determined to fix. That's what will make you say, oh, this feels right. 
because I'm here to worship and I'm here to be in awe and I'm here for all of my innermost affections in the default mode of my heart to be drawn to and impressed with and worship and glorify the God who created me. like what he says. He's pinpointing the problem. And he's saying, your hearts are far from me. That's the issue. There's a proverb um, that talks about the depths of our hearts. Um, And if we ever... You know, I'm sort of convinced that because we can like scroll on whatever we want, this thing can distract me for three minutes or for four hours, depending on what I'm doing. Most of us don't spend a lot of time just reflecting on, our, on ourselves internally. And all the introverts are like, yeah, dude, you know, like I get caught up in my, okay. So, but we can easily distract ourselves, <laughs> introverted or not. <laughs> we all have a favorite show, you know, so there's, we can all pull ourselves away from that. And I think that there, uh, there's a, a Puritan that I love. His name is uh, John Flavel. He writes a tiny little book called Keeping Your Heart with God, or How to Maintain Your Love of God. It's called Keeping the Heart. It comes from a proverb. And he is pulled away from his church because of changes in the law. So he is now an illegal preacher, and he does things in the forest, and it doesn't always work out. And so now he has to go somewhere else. And he writes this letter to his church, And his church, I'm sure, is saying, man, this is not right. Something is really wrong here when the guy that's pointing us to Jesus and encouraging us and and sacrificing himself for us is illegal. Like, he can't do this. And he he writes this letter to his church and says, because I love you and I care for you and I can't be with you, I want you to focus on the most important thing while I'm gone. I want you to just lean into this. And he says, above all other studies in the world, study your heart. You should go and examine how you think and how you feel and what you're drawn to and how, you're, how you operate and why. And you should look at that in the light of scripture And you should say, am I drawn to the Lord and his glory and his majesty and the king sitting on the throne, Jesus Christ? Or is my heart being pulled in so many other directions? And this tiny little book that he wrote to his church was his plea for them as he went to another country to not go get arrested and killed. Um, Was his plea to them to focus on what was important. So that, they could, so that they could see God's fruit happen and, and worship continue, even though everything in the world at the time was operating against the, the, the clear gospel being proclaimed to the world. And we can respond to that if we, if we, if we, if we see or if we feel that something isn't right and we recognize the way that God works. We recognize that he's working to purify us through a measure of suffering, just like with Christ, just like with Israel, just like with the Christians that 1 Peter is writing to. And we we recognize what he's doing. The way that he makes things right is to, to go after the heart, is to say, this is what I value. This is what I want. I want you to love me and worship me and come to me. So God's bringing these, these, these measures of suffering to say, I want your heart to be transformed. We can respond in a few different ways. 
And essentially, we can respond with pride or humility. And, and this is what he says in verse 15. There's a, there's a response of pride. It is all, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel. And it's an awkward sentence because it's awkward in the original language. It's like those of you who sort of run away from what God is saying, those of you who hide deep and, and sort of hoard your, your own counsel, those whose deeds are in the dark and who say, who sees us, who knows us? God's saying, you don't think things are right in the world? I'm telling you that your heart needs to be drawn closer to what I'm doing and who I am. And our response is, you don't know me. You don't know I have this going on in my life. You don't know that this is a problem I had to deal with yesterday. You don't know that this future situation could lead to something disastrous. You don't know what I'm dealing with. Some of the toughest words in scriptures come immediately after that. You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? It's like, I created you. So when I speak from my word and tell you what needs to be fixed, for you to push back is ridiculous. I don't even like when my car seatbelt thing goes off. I'm like, don't tell me what to do. I'm only going this far. I didn't even make it. But God tells us what's wrong. He's pleading with and saying, it's your heart. You can do all the right things. You can worship. You can speak well of me. But if you are not only drawn to me and comforted by me and resting in me, and want to see me in everything that you do, want to glorify me in all the places that I put you. If, there's, if your heart is straying from me, that's the problem. That's why things don't feel right. I'm working everything out. Amen. And in pride, we can say, yeah, but this thing, but you don't know, I'm worried. God isn't um, bringing us through trials. God isn't working to draw our heart near to him so that he can just sort of leave us in the dust, the, the image of being brought low. He wants to bring us comfort. He wants to make things right. He wants you to look like Christ and glorify him. He wants his church to be a light in a dark world. And he's saying in verse 17, look, you don't, you're rejecting what my diagnosis of what's going on. You're rejecting how I work. And I'm trying to get you to recognize the issue here. Verse 17, is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? When I think of Lebanon, it's like the desert-y place. It reminds me of like Eastern Colorado. 
It's not very pretty. It's like brown and rocky. Um, and, you know, we drive to Nebraska, or not recently, but we've driven to Nebraska a bunch of times. When you get to Nebraska, it's like, okay, now we have irrigation, and it's boring still, but it's green all of a sudden, and it wasn't green before that. He's trying to give us images here of what it, what it looks like when we trust his diagnosis, what it looks like when we realize what he is doing, what it looks like when we lean into the reality that it's our hearts that actually need to be transformed to make things right. He's saying the desert will be turned into a fruitful forest, into a field. And then he, he gives us all these other images that may sound familiar if you're familiar with some of the gospels. He says, in that day, the deaf shall hear the words of the book. Forget people that couldn't read. The people that can't even hear will recognize what God is doing. Out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. And our ESV says the meek, but it's the same word as humble. The humble shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. Amen. Fresh joy. I mean, he could just said joy. He's like fresh joy. It's like cooler than the other joy. <laughs> but he's like trying to compound these words to give us an idea of what God is actually capable of to encourage us with this reality that if, if we see what he's doing and how he's working on us and refining us and, and trying so desperately to draw our hearts near to him so that that's where our comfort is, so that that's where our foundation is, so that's where our peace is, if we humble ourselves, if we recognize that our hearts are actually constantly straying from the Lord, and that when he brings situations into our life, we just throw a fit to him and we humble ourselves and say, Lord, you have united your son to me. You are more determined to make me into his image than anything you were doing in the Old Testament. You've equipped me with the Holy Spirit for the entire fact of changing what's going on in here. I can't do that. I'm poor, I'm blind, I'm deaf to your words, and I need you to open those things up to me. I need you to help me recognize what you're doing in the world, what you're doing in my life so that I could draw near to you. The humble, verse 19, the humble shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord and the poor among mankind shall exalt in the Holy One of Israel. It's Jesus himself. John the Baptist says, hey, I'm in prison. I don't know if you know this. This is terrible. Um, can you send my messengers to be like, is this the guy? Is this the Messiah? My circumstances are really bad right now. About to lose his head. He doesn't think he knows that yet. And what does Jesus respond? He says, tell John, the deaf hear, the blind see, the poor have good news preached to them. Yeah, I'm the one who has come, the Messiah, to transform hearts and minds and open people's eyes to see what I'm doing in the world. Amen. And John, the circumstance you're in, I'm sure if they were chit-chatting later, of suffering in prison is exactly how I'm drawing you close to me. 
That's what I'm using because that's how Jesus learned obedience. That's how Jerusalem was refined in the past. And that's how we fix the problem of our hearts and draw closer to God and enjoy him. Verse 22 wants to encourage us with the results. If things don't feel right, and they really shouldn't, some sense. <laughs> but if you just, things just don't feel right in your life or in your church, this church, to recognize the way that God fixes things, it's through suffering, it's through heart change, it's through drawing near to him here, not just here. And we respond with humility we recognize that we fall short, but we also exalt in the Holy One. We exalt in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We exalt in the one who is ruling and reigning and making every enemy his footstool. We result in the one that obeyed perfectly and suffered and died on the cross and became sin so that you and I could become the righteousness of God. Praise God for all of those things. If that's our response, Look at what he says in verse 24. Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. So let me tell you about the people who I have rescued, my people. Jacob shall no more be ashamed. I'm, I'm bringing them through this suffering to get them somewhere. I don't want them to just stay on the ground in the dust. No more shall his face grow pale. Hunger and sickness and weakness. Saying that's not going to be the case. For when God's people see his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. Yes, Lord. Uh, some people think that Peter is meshing this verse when he says, sanctify the Lord. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. It's kind of like blurring some of these things together. He's saying, in the deepest part of who you are, as I refine my people, as I, as I make things right, you're actually going to consider Christ as Lord. Serving him will be a priority. Trusting him to rule and reign will be where you, where you stand. Everything in here will be drawn to him so that you have a measure of rest, so that you have peace, so that you won't be ashamed, so that your face won't grow pale. And our series title is, is The Lord Waits. The Lord waits because he's telling this to his people, waiting for them to come to him, waiting for them to recognize that they can't see, waiting for them to have ears to hear the words that he's saying, waiting for them to have a measure of humility in the reality that their hearts are not where they should be. 
And he promises us in verse 24 that those who go astray in spirit, in, in who they are deep down, will come to understanding. Those who murmur, those who say, you don't know my situation, Lord, will accept instruction. This is the, the beauty of what God is doing. He is working in the world. He is instructing his people. He is bringing suffering in our lives, in our church to accomplish his purpose. He is working to draw our hearts deeper and deeper into the glory and majesty of our heavenly father. He is doing that. And we can respond with humility and say, Lord, I want to be a part of that. I want to worship you more. I want you to be the reason that I have peace. Or we can respond in pride and say, yeah, but there's something else. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you speak so clearly to us. Lord, um, I know that in my pride, I have yeah, butted things all week. You've convicted me of that. You've, you, your spirit is, is powerful. And I, I'm so easily deceived myself into thinking that the root of the problem is something other than drawing near to you. I pray that you would just forgive me. I know that you forgive me. I thank you that you forgive me because you see your people as united to your wonderful son. Lord, I thank you for that. I thank you that we get a chance this morning to exalt in the Lord of glory. I pray that as you bring refinement in our lives, that we would be quicker to recognize that our hearts need to find their rest in you, Lord. As we trust you more, as we see you work, as we genuinely enjoy your presence and your worship and just your majesty, that you just give us more of that. Give us more fresh joy because we've turned from the things that we desire and said, Lord, help fix my heart so I could glorify and honor you. In your name I pray, amen.